have one announcement here. It's not someone that pertains to the church here specifically, but uh, Ivan here is uh, building a deck for a lady, and uh, she has some serious health problems. They don't even know how to diagnose, but it uh, certainly takes her strength and her energy and uh, and is a great difficulty for her. And her daughter has been taking care of her. Kim King, the, the lady's name is Linda Jarvis. And her daughter, Kim King, has been taking care of her. And now she has cancer. So it limits her ability to even take care of her mom. So uh, Ivan and Christy ask that we uh, send up some prayers in their behalf. Uh, sometimes I think we think that God only heals among his people, but when Christ was here, he healed people from every walk of life and from here, there, and everywhere. And it certainly is not his responsibility or his purpose to heal the world today. Uh, he's going to heal the world in a very few short years when he begins the millennium, is when he is going to set his hand to heal the world, the whole world. But in the meantime, that doesn't mean he might not make exceptions here and there if we pray to him for help for someone who we know of that might be having difficulties. So I think it's certainly within the realm of our prayers to make a special request for Linda and for Kim. And we know he hasn't even been healing all of our diseases and debilities to this point, uh, he does sometimes, and I've seen some pretty dramatic healings over the, even the last few years here. But then sometimes we suffer along with things, uh, old age and disease and everything that happens to human beings. And uh, he's promised us, though, that the time of restitution comes and he's ready to show the world his hand through the miracles he does, and I can show you scriptures to, sh to prove that, that the deaf will hear and the blind will see and the lame will walk, and he's going to do some incredible miracles in the very near future to help convince the world and prepare them for the millennium that is to come. They'll get a witness of it ahead of time, which they will, of course, ignore, and then most will have to die. And uh, those who are left will have had a pretty strong witness, and they're going to be most of them ready to accept Christ's rule at that point. And those who didn't and died uh, will come up in the second resurrection and have their chance then. So God's plan covers everybody, and every everyone will have a chance. So it's all according to His plan and His purpose, and we don't need to expect things of Him that He has said are coming later, and yet we can expect some things from him if we in faith go to him now. Uh, he gives us a little help. He's even said, where, where is that scripture? It says, uh, after you have suffered a while, establish and uh, comfort you, or how, however it puts it, establish and so on. So he's going to make us suffer. <laughs> Uh, that we might learn, and that we might pray, and that we might be fervent, and that we might be truly seeking Him because we need Him in so many ways. So, 
just a few words to go with that and to to help us understand that God's purpose isn't to heal everybody immediately, but He has a plan in place for everybody, and everything will turn out good in His time and in His way. Meantime, we deal with things day to day as we face them and try to do so with absolute faith and trust that if we obey Him, things will work together for good in the long run. And isn't that all that matters, the long run? The short run doesn't really matter. Uh, We can deal with whatever we need to deal with, but in the long run, it will all turn out right. And having trials, troubles in the short run help us look to the long run uh, and to help fulfill His purpose in us. Well, yesterday we talked about the work of Noah, then we talked about the work of the church at the end time uh, being Noah's work having been a type of the end time work and how few will be saved at the end just like then. Uh, But I want to, to today, instead of just recounting just history that I may know about Worldwide Church of God, I want to begin to show you in Scripture that which can be identified as the end-time church. I think it's important that we understand where the church is and what the church is and what God is doing and what God has been doing up to this point and is going to do. Let me remind that Paul said the Scriptures were written for those upon whom the ends of the earth have come. Now, the New Testament, most of it had not been written nor canonized at that point. He was referring essentially to the Old Testament. I mean, he was writing a letter that is now part of the New Testament, but it wasn't when he was writing it at all. It became part later when God caused that to be canonized. So, if the ends of the world, he thought, were coming upon him, uh, that certainly... Uh, tripled up on today. (laughs) We are at the end of the age. Uh, Also, we even saw Peter yesterday in 2 Peter 3.2 says we ought to pay attention to the prophets. Now, he was, the prophets had been long ago, and most Bible commentators today will say that all those prophecies were fulfilled way back when. Like in Daniel, Antiochus, Epiphanes, defiling the temple, that was, that's all said and done. Don't have to worry about that anymore. It's prophecy that was fulfilled. And yet, Daniel even says that he is to seal up the book, and it is not to even be understood until the end time. So where do these guys get off saying, well, that was fulfilled 4,000 years ago, when God says the meaning of Daniel doesn't even get opened up until the end, which is where we are. And Daniel, to this day, is still one of the most difficult books to understand. I think we're getting a pretty good grasp now of prophecy throughout the rest of the Scriptures. And we're beginning to get more understanding and perspective of Daniel. But there's some places in there I still don't know where they fit. Uh, And it's a lot clearer now than it was five years, ten years, fifteen years ago. But I still don't know what that 1,335 is at the end, for instance. 
1260 is pretty clear in Revelation and Daniel. But that extra 40 and, and uh, 45 and 30 days, no clue. People say, well, what's this about? I don't know. It's really easy to answer. I don't know. So let's understand as we get into some of these scriptures that we need to project what is being said in the prophecies for the end time to the end time. So it's referring to things now. Let me give you an example like Ezekiel 16. There, uh, God goes into it and He says to Israel, you don't even look like Israelites. You look like your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Uh, you, don't even, you look like Gentiles to me. And then he went on to call her the great whore. And God, or Christ, actually divorced Israel because of her whoredoms and her fear or her failure to follow his ways. And then in the New Testament, I mean, the divorce had already gone through. In the New Testament, we are members of a potential marriage. It's changed. It's a spiritual thing now. And we are to marry Christ at his return, uh, well, shortly after pictured by atonement. So it is an engagement period now. He married ancient Israel, and she failed to perform. And she did those things which legitimately, in God's view and in His commands, uh, she could be divorced for. So that happened under Old Testament law. It was real easy for Christ to divorce Israel because of her conduct. So He did that. Now with the Jews, He didn't divorce them. That had already occurred. He wasn't married to them. But there in Matthew 23, He says, I'm disfellowshipping you until you accept me and those whom I have sent. And to this day, most of the Jews have not accepted either Christ or the New Testament gospel and those who preach it. A few Messianics have sort of, but they haven't, they've taken the name of Christ, but they haven't taken the doctrines and teachings of Christ. So he, instead of divorcing the Jews, he disfellowshipped them. Till you do this, I'll have nothing to do with you. So then we have people in the church today who don't comprehend that. And they, when things started breaking up, they started looking to the Jews for answers. The Jews don't have any answers. They didn't have any in Christ's day, and they haven't gotten any more since. So why would we look to the Jews? No, we've got to look to the Word of God. So, Ezekiel 16, then, is tied in, since Ezekiel makes it very clear, and I won't go to all these places to prove it, but we've gone there before. Ezekiel is written for the end of times. It's a latter-day prophecy. You go to Revelation 18, you start reading it, and it sounds just like Ezekiel 16. The great whore, uh, Israel which has become the Babylon, the leader of Babylon today, and how it's going to be destroyed very shortly now through financial and military collapse. It's going to happen. And many, many prophecies back that up. 
So, with that background, let's go to Ezekiel 17. Now, this is one that the commentators have no idea what to do with, and they basically relegate it to ancient history because it talks about Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. But there is a modern Babylon, and it is the whole world. Satan's system is a Babylonian or confused system. But who is the leader of modern Babylon? The United States has been now for about a hundred years. So we are the leaders of Babylon, and that's what Revelation 18 is talking about. So when we have the background of Ezekiel 16 about how he calls her the great whore, Revelation 18 does the same thing. Now we're already in the context of talking about the end times. And there's where we are when we hit the next chapter, 17. He says, The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, put forth a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. What is a riddle? A riddle is something you tell someone and expect them to figure out what the answer to that riddle is. The riddle contains a few clues, and then you're supposed to sort out what it's talking about, right? So that's a riddle. Now, what's a parable? A parable is something that Christ said he used to cause people to be confused and deceived and not be able to understand. I think I said the other day that people think that the parables were written to make things simple so everybody could understand this little pastoral analogy and it makes it so simple. He says, no. He says, I was speaking of things in those parables that sounded real simple, but I was doing it in such a way that they wouldn't know what in the world I was talking about. Okay? <clears throat> so a riddle is difficult. And then if you also make it a parable, you're doubling the difficulty. And let me throw one other thing in there. This is in a prophetic book, so it's also a prophecy. And prophecies have their own enigmas and difficulties in understanding. So there's three strikes. You think we can understand it? <laughs> now, I've been over this before, so you, you already kind of know. But I think in terms of an overview of the end-time work, this is a good one to show what God is talking about. All right, so let's look at it. Keep in mind that we're talking here in this series about the end-time work. We've built up to it, uh, and that's what it's about. And say... Thus says the eternal God, a great eagle with great wings, long-winged, full of feathers, which had different colors, came to Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. All right, let's start there. A great eagle. An eagle is uh, paramount among birds in many ways. It is... If you put it that way, a leader. Uh, nations sometimes are called eagles because of greatness. So this isn't a sparrow we're talking about here. This is something more prominent than a sparrow. Uh, a leader. With great wings. 
all right? Big wings means that it stretches out and covers quite a lot of territory. Hummingbird wings are about that long, and they don't cover much. Just They just flutter quickly. But a, an eagle has long wings with great reach. And that's how you know sometimes when you see a hawk or a raven, it's not an eagle. And then when you see an eagle, you, you do a double take because, oh, it has bigger wings than what I've been looking at. Great wings and long wings. Now, the true Jerusalem, physically speaking, also has a feature with some wings on it and a dip where a neck is. So when God talks about Israel as an eagle or Christ as an eagle, great leader, or Jerusalem, uh, the wings of an eagle, is the way Christ describes him delivering his church, that he will take them out on the wings of an eagle. Well, he's the one that delivers, so he's the eagle. So when we start talking eagle in Scripture, we're starting to talk about something prominent. Great wings, long-winged, full of feathers. Uh, A bird with lots of feathers means that it has... Speaking of people here, prophetically, lots of feathers means lots of people. Just like a tree is referred to as a church, if it has many leaves or many branches, then it's got a lot of people in it. We'll see that a little further on down here. Full of feathers, which had different colors. Now that's interesting because you see an eagle and it's mostly brown. may have a few white feathers under the tail if it's a bald eagle and a bald head, if it's a mature one. Golden eagle doesn't have white on it. I mean, maybe little specks, but it's essentially just a brown bird. And uh, yet this bird, great eagle, had lots of colors. Well, what if you had lots of feathers, picturing people, and then you had lots of different colors? That means colors of people. So there's different colored people on the earth. So this parable and riddle is going to be referring to something bigger than just one spot, but all peoples of all colors, long-winged, which means it reaches a long way, so it reaches around the world. Didn't Christ say, go into all the world, preach? What did Herbert Armstrong do? Went into all the world. Didn't get to every nation, but he got pretty much around the world, to all colors of people. He came to Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. Now, we speak of the cedars of Lebanon, and in modern parlance, that means some cedar trees that are in the country of Lebanon in the Middle East. But we have since learned that the original Lebanon was over here. It wasn't over there. Neither was the original Jerusalem. Nothing original was from the Middle East. God says, I'm going to give you a promised land that will have everything you need. I won't go into all of that at this point. We've read it. You go over there, and there ain't nothing much you need. 
when I landed in Tel Aviv and began to kind of drive around, I thought, boy, if this is a promised land, I'll pass. I don't want any part of this. I wouldn't want to live here. Wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. I want to be back over here where there's waters and trees and birds and animals and mountains and beauty. So, came to Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. Well, now, where did Herbert Armstrong come to? He was around Chicago and Des Moines, Iowa. And his businesses failed, so he went where? To Oregon. Is Oregon known for having a lot of cedar trees, beautiful cedars? Yeah. I've got some chainsaw car bears here that are from Northern California, just just south of, of Oregon, all made out of cedar. Well, there's beautiful cedar trees in Oregon and Washington and so on. So, there's where he went and took the highest branch of the cedar, now, a cedar or any tree has lots of limbs, starting at the bottom. But he was going to take the highest, the most lofty, the best, if you will. If you're sitting back looking at trees in the forest, do you concentrate on the lower limbs? You're going to look into those lower limbs because they're so beautiful. No, you don't. You sit back. And you look more at the tops of the trees. There's where the symmetry is. It's just a tangle down underneath. But the symmetry is up above. I look at a blue spruce. All I want to see is those beautiful blue needles. I don't want to see the tangle down below. And try, try a chainsaw on one of those. And you'll be limbing all day long before you get a few pieces of wood out of it. Well, maybe not all day, but you know what I mean. So, he took the highest branch of the cedar. Now, when it comes to doctrine, he was going to have the best. When it comes to doing things, he was going to do the best. He cropped off the top of his young twigs and carried it into a land of traffic. He set it in a city of merchandise. So, that cedar tree there, and him being an eagle with feathers, has to infer that that was people. He took the twigs. Now, what happened when he moved to Pasadena? Some of the most loyal, the most faithful of those who had become a part of this small little church in Oregon, moved to Pasadena with him. I met some of them uh, when I was there in college in 66. There were still a few old ones alive. And I, the Eckers, for instance, I remember. So, trees are pictured as churches. The limbs and branches and leaves on trees then would be people in the churches. So here he pictures it as a, both an eagle as a leader who would go around and have long reach with different colors. And then he reduces it to a tree which represents a church with twigs and limbs and branches and so on that represent people. So 
he cropped off the top of his young twigs and carried it to a land of traffic, uh, to a city of merchants. Well, L.A. is one of our biggest ports. Uh, I don't know about volume, but it's probably second or third or maybe even first for all I know. But it certainly is a land of merchants, and a lot of traffic goes through there. Uh, international travel from the U.S. goes through mostly L.A. or San Francisco. So it's a very, very busy city, if you will. He took also of the seed of the land, not just the twigs from Oregon, not just people from the city of traffic or merchants, but the seed of the land, the whole land. Where did the gospel begin to go? Out across this nation. And it was the seed of Israelites, basically, that were called there. So he took the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. Fruitful field means good soil, good place to grow, uh, where it had the chance to be a very, very productive plant. He placed it by great waters. Uh, we know from the New Testament that waters represent doctrine, good doctrine, good waters. Uh, Christ is the source of water, and it's what is needed to cause things to grow, is good doctrine, good water. And set it as a willow tree. So uh, he took from the cedar, took the best of what Oregon had produced to Pasadena. Then he planted seeds of this nation and gave them good doctrine, good teaching, and set it as a willow tree. Now, why a willow tree? Well, a willow grows near water. And this tree needed to grow. So it changes a little bit to a willow tree. Not a cedar in that sense. And it grew. Now here's part of the reason for the willow. Uh, have you seen willows along a creek bed? They grow there and the moose get in there and eat willows a lot. But willows do not become great big trees like cedars do. Uh, and there's usually a tangle of younger ones and older ones growing down in a, a, a bottom where there's water. And they don't grow to any substantial um, stature as a tree, particularly. Some can get fairly good size. But let's read what he says is going to happen to what has been planted here. And see, what hap see how that fits worldwide. Uh, so he planted, set it as a, as a willow tree, and it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. So it didn't grow into a stately cedar, but it was it grew more like a spreading vine, like a, a bunch of willows in the creek bottom, whose branches turned toward him. And the roots thereof were under him. What happened in Worldwide? Everybody began to look to Herbert Armstrong. And sometimes looked to him more than they did even to God and to Christ, because he was the leader. 
And everyone would clap and applaud when he came out on stage and so on, and he kind of tried to suppress that. But uh, people began to look to him as a man, that he was the leader. He was visible. You could see him. So people turned to him. And there are organizations today, 30 years after his death, that still almost worship him. You look at Jerry Flurry's uh, PCG, and you hear more about Herbert Armstrong than you do about God. By quite a bit. So, it turned to the man more than to God. And then when the man turns out to be a man, they start having trouble because they're looking more to him than they are to God. And then the man gets in the way, and first thing you know, they depart from God because the man isn't perfect. Have you ever seen that stuff happen? I've seen it happen right here. So, they turned to him, so it became a vine and brought forth branches and shot forth sprigs. Now, it grew, and it shot forth branches. There were branches of worldwide all over the world. It did become worldwide. There was also another great eagle with great wings and many feathers, and behold, this vine did bend her roots toward him, and shot forth her branches toward him, that he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. So, Herbert Armstrong was replaced by what? By Joe Koch, who also came to have stature with the majority of the church. And they began to look to him instead of to Herbert Armstrong. Now, what did he do? <laughs> Let's read on. He, he still had a lot of people, still had the feathers, still reached out wide. And he said, this vine did bend her roots toward him. So they accepted him, for the most part, as the leader. And shot forth her branches toward him. So then it was suddenly to cotch, to cotch, to cotch. And when they clapped and applauded him, he raised his hands and wanted more is the way he did it. He didn't try to suppress it. He tried to get more out of them. Some of you experienced and saw that. I did. That he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. It was planted in a good soil by great waters. The great doctrine, the true doctrine, was right there, and it was beside it. It was by it. <laughs> it wasn't in it began to depart from it, that it might bring forth branches, and that it might bear fruit, that it might be a goodly vine. So he said, I'm going to follow in Herbert Armstrong's footsteps, I'm going to do things just the same way, keep the same doctrines, and so on and so forth. He attested and swore he would do that. Is that what happened? Did you ever see a politician make campaign promises? Enough said. <laughs> So, the expectation that it would be bear fruit and be a goodly vine. Say you, thus says the eternal God. Here's a question God poses. Shall it prosper? 
Now, that's what everybody thought would happen. Jodakach even said, we're not going to require tithing anymore because I know that your hearts are so full of God and love for Him and for His work that you'll actually give more than when you were required to tithe. I'm paraphrasing, but that was essentially the message he gave. And what happened? The income dropped very rapidly. <laughs> if I don't have to, I ain't a gonna. <laughs> was the way people looked at that. And that's history. And of the, all the doctrines that he changed from good waters, that's the only one he ever changed back. So, oh, we've decided you'd... Really, tithing is required in Scripture after all. <laughs> what a bunch of... Never mind, let's go on. Shall it prosper? Shall he not pull up the roots thereof and cut off the fruit thereof that it wither? What began to happen? It wasn't very long till it wasn't producing much fruit and it began to wither and die. It shall wither in all the leaves of her spring, even in the springtime when it's supposed to be putting out more leaves. Nah, wither even then. Even without great power or many people to pluck it up by the roots thereof. It's going to shrivel and die on its own. You don't need a whole lot of people to try to take it apart. It's, it's going to self-destruct. Isn't that what happened? Yes, behold, being planted, shall it prosper. Shall it not utterly wither? When the east wind touches it, it shall wither in the furrows where it grew. Right there where it had expanded and expanded, and we had the Ambassador Auditorium, and we had the huge administration building. We had cedars of Lebanon on the campus that Herbert Armstrong used to look to and talk about a lot because they were beautiful stately cedars right there on the campus that had been planted before he ever bought it. So it had grown into a magnificent campus, one of the most beautiful man-made things on earth. And I've seen a lot of places, and I'd have trouble showing anything that was any better than that. And right there, where it was, it began to wither and die. And the Hall of Administration got sold off, and I think demolished, actually. Loma Armstrong Academic Center, which they built while I was there. Uh, I happened to drive by years later, and they had the wrecking balls there destroying it that day. And it got turned over to a school, and it's basically just been taken apart. Not there anymore. Not worth visiting. Right there where it grew... It withered and died. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house. So now he calls it a house, temple, house. But it had rebelled against his ways, against his doctrines, gone right back to Protestantism. Know you not what these things mean? All right, it's a parable, it's a riddle, it's a prophecy. Do you know what it means? Well, there may be some who have ears to hear and eyes to see, but most people don't. If you did not know Worldwide Church of God, you could not understand Ezekiel 17. Nobody out there in the world 
can even possibly begin to understand this prophecy. And 90% or more of the church of God could not understand this prophecy. And I went for a long time not getting it either. And one day I said, Father, I don't get this parable in this riddle. This riddle. What's this talking about? And I, I spent a little time talking to him about it. I said, I just don't get it. Show me what this is talking about. And all of a sudden started reading and it just came as clear as a bell. This can't be talking about anything else but the church. The whole history of Worldwide Church of God is written right here. Where it started in Oregon and went to Pasadena and grew and then began to come apart. So simple. When you see it. So, do you know what this means? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon is come to Jerusalem and has taken the king thereof and the princes thereof and led them with him to Babylon. What did Jodokach begin to do? He began to take the doctrines away. He began to send the ministry to Fuller's Seminary to learn true doctrine. They have, uh, what, what do they call them now, these uh, places where you, you go for artificial insemination? Same word, same root word of a seminary uh, in religious terms. The semen of the world, the semen of Babylon was planted in the ministry. I was in Southern California pre- with a couple of congregations when they began that program or Shortly after they began it, when I got there, I don't know. But they tried to get me to go to Fuller Seminary. And I said, no. I'm not going there. Why would I go to a Protestant college when I'm here preaching the gospel of God to these people? I don't need my time spent in the Protestant college. It wasn't too long after that that they told me they were going to bring me back into college for a year for... uh, educational enhancement. I don't know the exact words they used, but uh, I went, I marched down to David Andean's office. Les Stocker was the guy kind of in charge there. And I said, Les, I want out of here. I said, Raymond Cole just brought me in and talked to me for an hour about how he's going to bring me into college for a year and he wouldn't tell me why. He talked for an hour, never said why. I knew why. I didn't want Protestant indoctrination. It was very simple. And it was a short while afterward. He, I said, I'd love to go to the mountains. He says, well, I think there's something coming open in Farmington and Durango, Colorado, and up in Idaho. I says, either one will do. Just get me there. Shortly thereafter, we were in Idaho. And I was a happy camper. But... That's part of what was happening here. The king of Babylon has come to Jerusalem. Now, remember, all these prophecies are written first to the church, then to the nation of Israel. Spiritual Israel first, physical nation next. <coughs> so when he calls Joe Dukach, the king of Babylon, Dukach had come out of Babylonian religions, and he still believed them. I'll give you one more example. Uh, they gave me a, an office at Sturgis Pharmacy across from the Hall of Administration 
because uh, I had the Glen, the El Monte Church, which was close there. And uh, I had an elder who would meet me there, and we'd talk, and we went in with the district superintendent, Al Carrozo, once a week for conference about the all the churches in the L.A. area. And uh, Joe DeCotch at that time still wasn't a big name. That was in the early 70s. He was helping the widows and having Bible studies and doing stuff like that. And his office was just down from mine. And I'd sit and listen to Joe counseling with new members or old members or whatever. And I used to sit there and think, he doesn't understand the truth. That man doesn't grasp the plan of God and the purpose and what we're here for. It used to astound me to listen to him counseling with people, and he didn't understand the truth of God. Frank Simpkins was my elder, and I said, Frank, you, you hear that? He says, yeah, I, that's odd. Well, it was odd. And then because he was left behind when we had the ministerial conference at Tucson, where Herbert Armstrong was living at the time, Joe DeCotch was left behind because he wasn't figured on as being important enough to, for him to even be at the conference. He could be behind and kind of mind the store. And that's when the attack from California came in 79. And he stood at the door and tried to keep them out. Well, that impressed Mr. Armstrong that he tried to defend what we had. And then he went up the organizational ladder really, really fast after that. But he hadn't learned true doctrine yet. He hadn't learned Christianity yet. He was still a Protestant, Catholic, whatever he was. He was also, I think, a 33rd degree Mason, if that gives you any clue. So when it says King of Babylon here, I don't have too much trouble plugging Joe Koch in there, <laughs> spiritually speaking. Not nationally speaking. That's the president. The King of Babylon has come to Jerusalem. Hebrews uh, 12, uh, what is it, 11 and 12 or somewhere right in there, I've quoted many times, speaks of the church as being Jerusalem and Zion and so on. So he came to Jerusalem, not the physical place, there's nothing there today, or the one in the Middle East, which is a fake. He came to the church and has taken the king thereof. I think he killed him, and I'll show you verses in the Bible, about that a little later, and more explanation than I've given in the past. So I think it's important we understand that Herbert Armstrong and Worldwide Church of God is absolutely entrenched in Scripture. Because, you see, it was the beginning of the end-time work of God. 1900 years at a jubilee from the time that Christ made that announcement. This is all going to come together uh, in a very powerful way. So he took the king thereof and the princes thereof and led them with him to Babylon. Some of the leading evangelists stayed with Worldwide Church of God when it became an evangelical church. They were getting a check. And I'll show you in Isaiah 1 how money was important to some of them. Why don't we just truncate this for a moment, or... 
and go back to Isaiah 1. Maybe this would be a good time to include this since we're talking here specifically of the church and its leadership. Now remember in uh, Micah 4, it says there you're... Well, before we go to Isaiah 1, let's go to Micah. We have the freedom to go where we want to here. Micah 4, verse 1. But in the last days, this is a prophecy for the end, it shall come to pass that the mountains of the house of the eternal shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Now that's speaking of the gathering, which we can see, that is going to come of 10% of the church to build the temple and to build Jerusalem back, so that it can be... Uh, the abomination of desolation could be set up. So, uh, it says on down here in verse 6, In that day, speaking of the last days, says the Eternal, will I assemble her that halts, lame, can't walk, uh, can't get anywhere, can't really do anything. You know, when you're lame, you don't get around too well. How's it go, George? You know? Don't cover a whole lot of ground. I will gather her that is driven out. Weren't we spewed out like vomit? And her that I have afflicted. Didn't God say He was the one that was going to put the affliction on us there in Revelation 3? Yeah. And I will make her that halted or stumbled a remnant. And her that was cast far off, a strong people or a strong, strong nation. So he's going to take that remnant and make her strong by his power. Doesn't he say, I will give power to my two witnesses to do this, to do that, to do the other thing, and crush nations even. And the eternal shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, from that time, even forever. In the last days, he says he's going to arise there in uh, Zechariah 2 and begin his work and choose Jerusalem, the church, yet again. So he says he's going to do that. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto you shall it come even the first dominion, that's rulership, leadership, governorship, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem, or the church. Now, why do you cry aloud? What's your problem now? In the last days, why are we crying aloud? Is there no king in you? Where's the strong leadership that we had before? The church can't look to anyone now truly as a leader. You've got... Three, four, five, six hundred different organizations are lack thereof. And no one, can we say, is the leader of it all. Oh. Where was I? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? HWA is dead. Been dead for a long time. And we're in utter confusion. His church that he called out, all those members are now in utter confusion because of our Laodiceanism. For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. We're going through all kinds of mental 
spiritual agony and frustration because of what has happened. This describes the church, doesn't it? He says, be in pain. Accept it. It's painful. And labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the wilderness or field, and you shall go even to Babylon, not to Chile or the Philippines or Ecuador, but within Babylon. There shall you be delivered. He likens this to a woman about to give birth and says, if you go out in the wilderness, there's where I'm going to deliver you. There's where you'll bring forth the Christ child, as he tells us in Isaiah 7. There he'll redeem you from the hand of your enemies, whoever they are. So, that describes the church as it is today. Now let's go to Isaiah 1. We will get there. Here, uh, Isaiah addresses Judah and Jerusalem, both houses. And he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. I brought up children, and they've rebelled against me. So that's the way it starts out. This prophecy of the end times is about a rebellious people who have turned from God. It says the whole head, verse 5, is sick and the whole heart faint. The sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They've not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Does that describe the church in its present condition? No soundness, no leadership, sick to death. Does it describe our nation, which is unsound, has no good leadership, and is sick to death? Describes both the church and the nation of Israel, nations of Israel. But the church is first. And we quoted yesterday from Peter, who was referring to verse 9 here. Except the eternal of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we'd been like Sodom and Gomorrah. So Isaiah, and then Peter, repeats it for the end-time church. So this is talking about the end-time church. He says he hates our new moons and our Sabbaths, verse 13, 14, keeping the wrong calendar and not really spiritually keeping the feasts the way they ought to be kept. (coughs) It got in worldwide where it was a vacation, it was a holiday. Wear your bathing suit under your clothes so you can hit the beach before the closing prayer became the mantra. We're here to eat, drink, and be merry. We're not here to seek the eternal and worship the Lord, the King of hosts. That was not the emphasis anymore. It was having fun. It was spending your second tithe. Your kids didn't look forward to going to the feast in order to get spiritual teaching. Your kids look forward to go to the feast because the Chuck E. Cheese is in the beach. I kid you not. (laughs) And they still look favorably, some of them, back at the feast. Nothing else, but they remember going to the feast because, boy, we got to eat and have fun. That's what it was about to them. And that's okay to a degree, but the emphasis needed to be different. So God wasn't happy. 
And as far as physical Israel is concerned, he's certainly not happy with their Christmas and Easter and Halloween and on and on. Their feasts. So it's talking of both. Verse 16, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. You know, as the local ministers, sometimes we had to actually plead with Pasadena to give them enough second tithe to actually go to the feast and have a bed that wasn't full of bed bugs and roaches. The ministry were in the nicer motels and had an open bar and their food was provided and everything was top notch. But the widows suffered. That's not what it's supposed to be. The widows should have had just as good accommodations as the ministers, or the ministers should have had just as bad as the widows. Well, Ted took a lot of the money and went to the casinos in Tahoe, Squaw Valley Feast, you know. You could gamble there. No, it wasn't pretty the way it turned out. It started out okay, but it didn't grow into a stately cedar, did it? No, it was a low-growing vine, and it turned to man, and it turned to money. Let's read on. (coughs) If you be willing and obedient, verse 19, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. Well, we, the church, was devoured by the spiritual sword, by spiritual famine and pestilence. Amos talked about a famine of the word, not a famine of bread. We had a famine of the Word. It became hard to find. And now, famine of bread is going to come on the nation very shortly. It's already coming. If you refuse and rebel, you'll get the sword. How is the faithful city become an harlot? So, Jerusalem, our nation, we read Ezekiel 16, or just did, how it became the great whore. And in the context, God's calling the church a great whore. Because our gods became man, our leaders. It became money. It became things that were not of God. We didn't put him first. And then we got false doctrines, doctrines of Satan and the world, which made us harlots, from the truth of God. Seeking something, doctrines which are false and fake and wrong and led us away from God. We're here to marry Christ. And if you start going after Satan and his doctrines, that makes you a harlot instead of a bride's, of, of a candidate to be bride. Spiritually speaking. How is the faithful city, and it had been, become a harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. There has been a great deal said and written, and I've talked to people who were on campus at the time. The night that Herbert Herbert Armstrong was always firing people. Uh, He fired Joe Dukach fairly regularly. Uh, He fired me once or twice and threatened to again another time. But he would fire you, and then a few hours later he'd hire you back. 
once he got past his temper tantrum and settled down and thought, well, you know, I really shouldn't fire so-and-so. And, oh, yeah, they screwed up, but they, they're pretty good people. <laughs> so he'd back off. He just had a volatile personality, put it that way. But uh, he had told me in a meeting that I had with him in 1981 that Joe DeCotch could not lead the church. And Joe was sitting in the room when he said it. Herbert Armstrong, Joe DeCotch, and I were the only men in the room. And he said, Al Portune can't do it, and Dave Annian can't do it. And he named a whole bunch of evangelists and said, they can't do it. And Joe DeCotch can't do it. Uh, and Joe's taken all this in. Joe got fired quite a few times. Well, the night that Herbert Armstrong died, there was a big fight, according to the security guards that go about the campus. They heard all this. And they said that Herbert Armstrong fired Joe that night. And next morning, Herbert Armstrong was dead, and some of the servants and the people that worked around said that uh, it appeared that he had been smothered with a pillow. And at his age, 93, and health issues and so on, nobody would really investigate uh, very closely. It just seemed natural. But what does the Scripture say? It's talking about the church first here, and then it's talking about the nation later. Now, I can show you in Hosea 6 that our king, uh, our leader of the nation, uh, speaking of Ephraim there, will be uh, destroyed in the morning. Uh, says about your two leaders in Isaiah 7 uh, will be destroyed. So, I do believe that it happened in the church first. Uh, I don't know of a lot of murder that was going on within the church. Do you? Did you hear about murder? I never did. So where are the murderers? Probably that night. Murdered the king. Murdered the leader. And we're going to have people who are going to murder uh, our physical leaders. I don't think there's time to have another president... So it's probably this one that they're, and they're the, he's the one that they're threatening to kill anyway. So, is it going to become a reality pretty soon? They're doing their very best to impeach him, and if you can't remove him that way, well, you got another alternative. And I think that's what they're going to do. I think the scripture tells us that. Probably the president and the vice president, comparing it to Isaiah 7, and then you have somebody like Nancy Pelosi moving into office. She's next in line. Scary business. Now murderers. I think they killed him. Your silver is become dross, your wine mixed with water. Didn't our doctrine get all watered down? Didn't the money that was there become worthless? They began to lose the buildings. They began to lose the broadcasts. They began to lose everything. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. The evangelists became companions of the Tkachas who were thieves, who were taking the money. Everyone loves gifts. I had an evangelist one time who was on 
a much, much higher pay grade than I was as a local pastor in a small church at that time. And he also had a pretty well bloated expense account. And uh, I was living in Jackson Hole at that point uh, by gratis from someone in the church for a short while. And he came up to visit, and he was broke. And he wanted me to buy him a decorative belt buckle. Because he had heard that I was rich. I still hear those rumors here. And that I got it here. I didn't have it back then, but I got it since I got here. $100 a month adds up fast, man. Especially when you're paying it with the mortgage with it. Anyway. But, the, the, but their huge income had become basically worthless to them. And companions of thieves. Everyone loves gifts and follows after rewards. Some clung to the cotches when they went simply because of their big salaries that they had as evangelists. They judge not the fatherless, neither does the cause of the widow come to them. They're all wrapped up in themselves and their salaries and their money, and they don't pay attention to the little guy. That's the way it became. So he says, I'll take it all away. I'll turn my hand on you and purely purge away your dross and take away your tin even. Well, it got to the point they didn't have anything left. All the buildings gone, the income gone. I don't know how they're even existing yet today, but it's not the Church of God anymore. It's some Protestant evangelical name. And it doesn't even resemble in any way that which it was. It's totally changed. Anyway, oh, that was a little detour from Ezekiel. Let's go back to Ezekiel. Got to at least finish this section today. 17, and I was down. How he took the king away. Well, I think they literally took the king away. Uh took the king and the princes thereof and led them with him to Babylon. All right, keep your thumb there for a moment. Go back to Zechariah 5. Now here you have the story and beginnings of Zechariah of the two witnesses and the church in the end time. And chapter 5 turns uh, and gives us some insight. Now, the two witnesses and the gathering, the 10%, are part of the church of God, right? So, that's the context here. Now, when you get past chapter 5 into chapter 6, it brings the two witnesses and all up again. So, this is an inset chapter in the story of the end-time church and the two witnesses. Chapter 5 is. Notice what it says. Then I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll, or a scroll. It's not a, not a pastry. Uh, they wrote on rolls of paper, or rolls of papyrus. A flying roll, so it had things written on it. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying roll. The length thereof is twenty cubits, and the breadth thereof ten cubits. This was the same dimensions as, uh, as I, was it the Ark of the Covenant 
or something there in the Holy of Holies. I, I forget now. I had it written in my margin and my thumb grease has erased it, so I don't remember for sure. So anyway, it has to do with the things of God written on a holy scroll. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. Now what are people cursed by? The Word of God. Because if you don't keep the Word of God, the penalty is death. So when God's roll or God's scroll or God's words are presented to you and you don't keep them, you come under a curse. That's where a curse comes from. <coughs> For everyone that steals shall be cut off, as on this side according to it, and everyone that swears shall be cut off as on that side according to it. In other words, it's saying that what's written on this roll is the laws of God. And it mentions a couple of them, that if you break, they're going to break you. So I think that becomes pretty clear. It's talking about God's Word. I will bring it forth, says the Eternal of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, and into the house of him that swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. Now that sounds like withering away and dying, destroyed. So what did they do? They denied the word of God, the laws of God, the commandments of God, said they were done away. So a curse came upon anyone who would do that. Tkachis did that. And the timbers and the stones and the buildings are all gone now. House built for God isn't about God anymore. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what is this that goes forth. So we're talking about some people who've been cursed because they would not follow God's laws. So what do you see? And I said, what is it? <coughs> and he said, this is an ephah that goes forth. An ephah was like a, we would call maybe a bushel basket today, something you picked fruit or produce in. He said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. This is how it appears on a worldwide basis, a basket. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. Lead's pretty heavy, dense stuff. And this is a woman. A woman in prophecy is a church that sits in the middle of the basket. So here you have a church sitting in a basket. A basket contains something, doesn't it? If you, if you remove the basket, fruit goes all over the table or all over the floor. But the basket, if you have the fruit in it, contains it. So this is a container. <coughs> and... There was lifted up a talent of lead, and this woman, this church that sits in this container, he said, this is wickedness. What did Worldwide Church of God become? Those who stayed with it became enclosed in a container of wickedness, Protestantism, Satanism. 
is what they were contained in. They were a member of it, they were part of it, and they were in that little basket altogether. Uh, this is wickedness. <clears throat> he cast it into the midst of the ether. So this is a curse and wickedness proclaimed that was thrown into the middle of this basket containing this woman or this church. And he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. Now lead, as I said, is a very heavy, dense uh, substance, almost as heavy as gold. And if somebody took a big wad of lead and jammed it in your mouth, what are you going to have to say? Not much. Can't talk around a great big piece of lead shoved in your mouth. Wasn't worldwide pretty well shut up? It had been on television and radio around the world. Millions and millions of plain truths and other magazines and booklets and on and on it went. It was a huge work worldwide. <clears throat> and after they take o took over, it wasn't very long until the voice stopped. God jammed lead in their mouth and they couldn't speak anymore. I don't know what they have today. Do they have any broadcast at all? Maybe a little one somewhere. I don't know. Haven't heard of it. I don't know that they even have any magazines or anything anymore. They got too broke. Don't have a pit to his in. Put the weight of lead on the mouth. <clears throat> then lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, there came out two women. <clears throat> and the wind was in their wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork. A stork is an unclean bird. <laughs> two of them. And they lifted up the ether between the earth and the heaven. So it's like they took hold of this basket... And they picked it up and flew with it. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, Where do they take this basket? And he said to me, To build it in a house in the land of Shinar, Babylon. And it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Not God's base anymore. Not God's law anymore. Withered destroyed, shut up, and planted in Babylon on her own base. That's what happened to Worldwide Church of God. Now, let's go back to Ezekiel 17, and maybe it'll make even more sense to us. <clears throat> Two unclean birds, the Tkachas, picked the church up and took it back into the world, set it on its own base there. It's been pretty well quiet ever since. Cursed. Doesn't have God's law anymore. Anyway, they led with them with him to Babylon. We just read about that in Zechariah 5. Now verse 13. And has taken of the king's seed and made a covenant with him and has taken an oath of him. He has also taken the mighty of the land. So, Jodakach 
took over the membership, took over the church. And he had made a covenant with Herbert Armstrong that he would walk in his footsteps and do as he did and follow the same doctrines. He's a liar. He didn't do that. Even though he took an oath to. He has also taken the mighty of the land. Who were the mighty ones in the church? Mainly the evangelists. Took some of them with him. That the kingdom might be base. That it might not lift itself up. (laughs) The unclean birds had to lift it up and haul it to Babylon. But it couldn't go anywhere on its own. But that by keeping of his covenant, it might stand. Well, it might have stood if he had kept the covenant that he made with Herbert Armstrong. But he didn't. And it didn't. But he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt or Mitzrayim. What's that a type of? Sin. What is sin? Transgression of the law. Law's done away, Joe said. That they might give him horses and much people. What did he do? He went to the world and said, we're going to become an evangelical arm of the evangelical movement in this nation, which was, there were some big old churches around, and their ministers were making hundreds of millions of dollars. You've heard of some of them on TV. Well, that's where they thought they were going to go. They'd become bigger and bigger and better if they were evangelicals. But that's not what this says would happen. They'll go to Egypt. They'll be promised horses and much people. We're going to grow. We're going to get bigger. And horses represents power and might, as in war horses, or ability to move and do things. Uh, On a horse, you can do things you can't begin to do on foot. Shall he prosper, God says. You're going to become evangelical. Shall he escape that does such things, or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? He promised Herbert Armstrong, told him he'd do it. Can he get away with that, God says? As I live, uh uh-oh, says the eternal God, surely in the place where the king dwells that made him king, Pasadena, God did pass the mantle on to Joe Koch, or at least he planned to. And the night, last night of his life, he apparently reneged on that and fired him and didn't live through it. But he had appointed him up to that point. He said he'll be my successor. Finally decided that. So, in the place where the king dwells that made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant he broke, even with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. After Herbert Armstrong died or was killed, it wasn't too long after that, the Joe Scotch got cancer and died in the same place. Neither shall Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company make for him in the war by casting up mounts and building forts to cut off many people. These Babylonians and evangelical people that he had gone to, to combine with, weren't going to save him. The worldly churches were not going to have much to do with him. 
So he thought his salvation was there, and it wasn't. Seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, when, lo, he had given his hand, shaken hands with Herbert Armstrong, said, I'm going to do it your way, and has done all these things, he shall not escape. He even made a statement. I never can remember. George, you remember it. What did George, uh, what did uh, Joe Koch say? If if I depart from or whatever I do, may God strike me dead. I, I, Nothing like it was sim- similar to that. I can't remember the exact words. But it was just shortly thereafter that he got cancer and died. He had made a challenge to God, and he wasn't going to keep God's way. And all his new connections didn't help him either. He will not escape. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, As I live, surely my oath has he despised, and my covenant that he has broken, even it will I recompense upon his own head. And he died under a curse. I will spread my net upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, and will plead with him there for his trespass that he has trespassed against me. And all his fugitives with all his band shall fall by the sword. Well, what happened after Joe died? All of those who had taken refuge with him, fugitives from worldwide, if you will, went into Babylon, and there they fell by the spiritual sword. Joe Jr. included. Because both father and son uh, were going against what God had established. And they that remain shall be scattered toward all winds. So some would die spiritually as a result of this uh, going into Protestantism. And the rest would just be scattered. Doesn't it say there in uh, Revelation 3 that from Sardis, which I believe worldwide became, it died. It was a dead church. That a few names would be left. The rest would die or be scattered. says it right here. fits Revelation 3 perfectly. And you shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it. So all their hopes and dreams and schemes all came to nothing. They were cursed, and now they're out of the picture. Gone. Thus says the Eternal God. Now he says... This is what's going to happen to Worldwide Church of God. Now, I'm going to do something else. I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar. Now, he gave Herbert Armstrong a good start that should have turned into truly a cedar tree. But because the vines and the branches and the roots turned to the man more than to God, it never achieved that height. So God says, now I'm going to start over. Okay? I will take the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing, and the shadow of the branches thereof shall he dwell. He says when he starts the work anew, people from all over the world, birds of every feather, 
will come and dwell in its branches, and it will be a stately cedar. Doesn't he say in Haggai that there will be old men that compare worldwide at its best with the latter temple at its best and say there's no comparison? That's what this says. Same comparison here. All the trees of the field shall know that I, the Eternal, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, (coughs) have dried up the green tree, withered and died, and have made the dry tree to flourish. So something which was nothing, dry, not producing anything, will suddenly become fruitful and grow into a stately cedar. God will take a tender one to lead it, and that which was doing nothing will do something for a change. Now that's the end of that story. And we're not done with the whole story by any means yet. There's much, much more to understand. But I think that gives us a good view, because doesn't this describe what we have seen and experienced right down to the letter? It's there. It's not a parable anymore. It's not a riddle anymore. You're people of the light. You're not people of darkness. You can see how this fits so easily and so perfectly with what we've gone through and what we're about to go through that is going to be a whole lot better. Stay tuned.